0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. A few weeks ago, some very important local elections were happening across the country. There were elections in Washington State, in New Jersey, and Virginia. But it was the elections in the latter state, Virginia, that everyone was talking about and watching, especially the race for governor. Between veteran politician and former governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, the Republican candidate in the race was a political newcomer and a businessman, Glenn Youngkin. And of course, we know the outcome of that race. Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, lost, which was a total shock to many pundits and analysts. So what exactly happened in Virginia? Well, on this episode, my guest is political strategist Atima Omara. In our conversation, we look at the various post-election analyses to determine which ones are plausible. For instance, was Terry McAuliffe the best candidate? We also take a look at the role that critical race theory played. And lastly, we try to answer the question as to whether Democrats were just too woke to win in Virginia. So please enjoy my conversation with Atima Amara. Atima Amara, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So I'm really happy to have you on because from what I understand of you, you are an expert on Virginia and Virginia politics. And I wanted to have a conversation about the election that happened. I think it was two weeks ago now. I wanted to get this kind of a cold, cold take because whenever there's a big election, everyone comes out with their hot takes. Like, you know, minutes after the polls close, everyone has a hot take as to what they think happened. And I think when that happens, when you have a take that's like so quickly after an election, when data isn't fully in, when, you know, all of the exit polls aren't fully in, people are just kind of reaffirming their own personal opinions versus, you know, informed, informed, you know, ideas about what may have happened. So just to set up why I wanted to talk to you. But before we go into our little conversation, I wanted to find out a bit about your background in Virginia, both politically and personally. What's Virginia to you?
1: Yeah, so uh, Virginia is a place where I've been raised since I was a small kid in the southern part of the state, actually um so pretty much in the area that was very very deep red and grew up there I've gone to college there grad school uh met my husband buried settled like made my you know adult life here as well um with stints in other places in the country when I was working campaigns and uh got my start in Virginia politics i was involved in the Virginia democrats um and then got involved in, in a local democratic committee and um, now, at this point in my life, um, I sit on the state party steering committee um, as a in my second term as a DNC member. Also served for a couple of years nationally after having gone through the Young Dem ranks um, in Virginia to becoming the national young president, a national president of the Young Democrats of America. So, you know, I come at it from like a you know a party perspective, as well as having worked on campaigns in Virginia, uh, congressional. Uh, two congressional races um, and several um, state ledge and local races as well.
0: So, yeah. So you're pretty much an expert. You know more about Virginia than anyone I think I've ever spoken yeah. to. It's your, your home, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, and you know, like I said, there was more going on on that election day than in Virginia, right? <laughs> Stuff was happening nationally yeah. here. You know, we had a mayoral race, but everyone was really focused on Virginia. So what's the big deal? Like, why was Virginia so important?
1: Uh, Virginia was important because one of the interesting things I think about this election is that, you know, I've always said that Virginia, especially in the last decade, as it's shaped, it's changed demographically and politically and become more important in the presidential race and just has changed enough that I feel like it's just a very good snapshot of where the country is nationally as like politically and demographically. So Virginia, people will like to say Virginia is a blue state. I've always thought it's solidly remained a purple state with like strong blue leanings. Um, And, you know, one of those things means that we have a certain percentage of people that are very dem and progressive, a certain percentage that are very conservative to the right. And then those are just straight in the middle. And that's pretty much where you know, our country is. And so in 2017, you know, people were trying to figure out if the blue wave would be real going into the 2018 midterms, or was it just, you know, polling when everybody was super suspicious of polling after the 2016 elections? And, you know, Virginia was a place that demonstrated that the blue wave was real. We picked up, you know, uh, 14 seats in the Virginia House of Delegates on maps that were not necessarily friendly to us, but were districts where Clinton had done well in 2016. Um, And then we won statewide ticket for Democrats for the first time in uh, a generation, and and in this term, I think reason why people are talking about it and what it matters for 2022 is, you know, it's the same thing, right? We had a wave in the opposite direction. And I would say it's less of a wave because um, Republicans didn't win the House of Delegates by that much, but they did pick up a statewide ticket. It was, um, you know, less than 60,000, more like maybe less than 65,000 votes all said and all said and done. So, you know, people are looking at it as to is this a good forecast as it was in 2017 as to where the country is going, given the political leanings of Virginia has seemed to be an accurate predictor in the last you know, five to 10 years of where the country is.
0: Yeah, um you're absolutely right. I've spoken with a lot of activists who have worked in Virginia to get the vote out. And, mm-hmm. you know, they they viewed Virginia, you know, as a template for other states that are similar, you know, other purple states. And I agree with you there too. It's a purple state. I've never thought of it as a solid blue state, but a purple state. And I think that's really important to remember. But anyway, activists on the ground saw Virginia as a template for other, you know, local elections around the country. And until, you know, this past election, Virginia was a a blue trifecta, right, which is really important for state politics. And like trifecta, just in case, you know, the listeners aren't sure what that means. It means that Democrats or it could be a red trifecta, too. It means that one party controls all levels of government in that state. So until recently, Virginia was a a blue trifecta. And that is no longer as of, I think, like a couple of weeks ago. So that's why it's, it's important.
1: Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. And it's uh, gotten the opposite direction, at least for the, well, and it gets kind of interesting because we have redistricting and all of that coming up. So at least for the next year, you know, the Republicans now uh, going into 22 will have statewide uh, executive offices that are elected as well as uh, state, at least the House of Delegates, they do not have the Senate. So, um, but with redistricting, we have new maps and that changes things So people have to run again, actually to, re- to hold their seats. So it could get... Kind of interesting with that new wrench thrown into all of this dynamic for everyone.
0: So, yeah, yeah. So, so let's get into to what happened on on Tuesday a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, all of the takes that the people have given on you know, on MSNBC and Meet the Press and all the places. Right. Um, let's start with the fact that we both agree that Virginia is a purple state and about overconfidence. Right. You know, in the Virginia election, when I look back throughout that whole election cycle leading up to last Tuesday or two Tuesdays ago, you know they sent in the big guns. Biden was there. Um, Stacey Abrams was there. They sent in the big guns to help win this election. And I remember it was like, I think it was the day before the election. For some reason, President Biden was giving a press conference and someone asked him about Virginia and he said, you know, we're going to win. And I, I got flashbacks to 2016 because I thought, wow, that's a lot of confidence for a race that's been like, you know, Within, you know, Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin, the two candidates for the gubernatorial race, which is, you know, which is the main race in that state. They were like point five points apart. And Youngkin, the Republican, was in front. And I just thought that there was a lot of overconfidence about Democrats taking the state, partly because Biden won during the presidential election. He won Virginia by 10 points. What do you think? Do you think that overconfidence was a factor here?
1: I think there was definitely overconfidence. Um on the ground from some folks and when i say on the ground i really just mean that i think you know mcauliffe was up higher earlier in the year and i think that they thought given that he was also running as an incumbent um or as an incumbent style even though he wasn't the incumbent because we only have one-term governors here um he served as governor before and he was using that record to be like i did all these great things And, you know, Yunkett is a lot like Trump and they were feeling good about their numbers. So I think that there was a little overconfidence in the the early days. And that went on, I think, for a little too long um, is my assessment. And when I talk to others here, what they felt went wrong. And for me, as as a strategist and having done campaigns, understanding like headwinds, where the electorate is, what's happening. You know, I don't care if we think that you're like, you know, 15 points ahead and should be, uh, because you're the logical answer to be, you know, governor, you just work like you're 10 points behind. And that wasn't, I think, until the final couple of months, uh, how a lot of folks uh, would definitely tell you they felt about uh, the campaign efforts and organizing. I mean, I will say, Turnout was the highest turnout we've ever had in a gubernatorial race. Uh, I think since the the 90s, we surpassed turnout um, by even what turned out in in, in, uh, 2017 for the governor's race. But the Republicans had more people who turned out um, and our turnout in comparison was down. And so when you look at such a small margin um, by which of and Democrats like the House of Delegates, I think they lost their seats um, when you add them up all together, the six or seven that lost their seats uh, by like a thousand votes. It wasn't mm-hmm. a lot. They were all losing by like a couple hundred, 300, uh, you know, not a lot. It wasn't a blowout. It wasn't a 2-1 loss for any of them. Um, and the same of the statewide ticket. You know, where can you make up that? 63,000. And there was a significant drop off from participation in 2020, for example. So we could have probably have found those votes uh, all across the state. And we didn't. So,
0: Is that what you mean by people became too comfortable too soon? Like, you know, if they had realized that and pivoted, do you think they would have done what differently?
1: Um, yeah. So I think a couple things. And I had given an interview as a couple of local dem chair's Um, who did as well, at least one in a Newsweek article on art experiences. Uh, Biggest flag for me was that I had gone down there with my mom uh, a couple times, and we had talked on the phone, and she'd said, you know, I'm not hearing anything from the McCullough campaign. And she's sort of like your prototype Black woman who votes in in elections she's even like since 2017 i think taken to voting in like our special elections because we have those a lot and so she's a consistent voter and she's pretty consistently voted for dems in the past she you know years ago she voted for republicans i think a few times like on, on the lower ballot people that she knew but she's just completely changed to like voting for you know democrats all the time and so she's just like i haven't heard anything um and i was like really like not a phone call not a bail piece not a... she's like no nothing not a door knock however i have been knocked by the young King campaign and i'm like interesting um you know and i know in past like she's always been knocked by the democrats usually just affirming that she's voting um and you know she gets a mail piece or two just urging her to come out as like what they consider her i would imagine as a base voter she didn't this year um i heard that from a number of my friends whose families you know are black or brown who have been uh, voting consistently um, in the state, like they hadn't really gotten a lot of outreach, or they had not known others who were consistent voters who had gotten a lot of voter engagement outreach. Um, when I went to go visit my mom, um, and she was in a, and she lived in a battleground area, like it was uh, one of the counties I was important. and you know, I noticed when I went to the neighborhood, my neighborhood over the years that like I visited her has never been extremely politically a sign here or there, that's about it. Uh, when I was on a visitor in the final month before the election, several Republican signs up, and not in the median's actual people's yards. Now, signs don't vote, but it does demonstrate a level of support when people take signs and put them in their yard. And I couldn't find a call of sign or any Democratic candidate sign, really. Throughout the neighborhood, that was my second alarm, you know, and so when you're trying to add that to other stories you're hearing from across the state where other folks are like, I'm not seeing ground game, you're then starting to wonder, okay, well, people like my mom are going to come out and vote. They've been consistent voters are going to come out and vote. They're going to do what they need to do. But who are we not reaching? That becomes the question. Uh, who is a little less consistent, a voter, right? If we're not even trying to engage the people who've been with us all the time, who else are we missing who maybe didn't prioritize the election this year because of the pandemic and schools and other things happening in their life um, or feeling like, you know, Trump's out of office, that there's less danger or a blue state who knows what have you? Um, this was a long way of answering the question, but these were just some things that I started to notice. I'm like, you know, this is not what I've noticed in the last four or five years. When we do campaigns, we contact every single dating on body to, <laughs> to come out um, and remind and remind them. You talk to your base, make sure they're coming out, and then you start trying to get the people who are less likely to come out just because they're not as, as, as consistent voters. But when they do, they vote for, for Democrats. Um, and then anybody else you want to pick off after that. And that I wasn't even seeing the base getting like as much engagement. Um, and that was my my first concern when I started seeing that, so.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing is, is that you're right that signs don't vote, but it's a good measure of enthusiasm in a community. You know, I mean, like for me, like I'm really into politics. I vote in pretty much every election and i buy signs and i and i don't even put them in my yard the effort the physical effort <laughs> that it yeah. takes to put a sign in your yard and take it out you know i don't even do that and i'm really into politics and right. i've heard the same sentiment with other elections you know throughout the years about you know i haven't heard from this candidate you know what's going on i haven't heard anything i'm going to vote for them anyway but i haven't heard anything and for me that's always the canary in the coal mine typically those voters when they say you know i'm not hearing from this candidate in my anecdotal experience that candidate usually loses
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and that's um i mean i remember like on a flip side i have like family in texas and they knew that beto was doing well because they lived in a very conservative county and people were putting beto signs in their yard and considering the reputation of democrats and how you know the gop's had a very good job of making people who are Democrats in Texas seem like they're like these socialists who like want to burn stuff down and end the world like the fact that people were making the effort to go put their Beto sign in their yard in this heavily conservative area and there were a lot of them they were like we don't know if Beto's gonna win or not but there was definitely a movement on the ground to support this guy in public office so um and we know that he came very close to taking um Ted Cruz out so so, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where, like, I've always used it as, like, a barometer of, oh, I'm not talking about signs on the road or, like, medians, but definitely when you start seeing that and then you combine it with the people who are the reliable voters, I'm like, I haven't heard from the Democrats at all. Um, like, voter engagement, because one of the feedback that came back from the campaign was, well, you know, we did radio ads, you know, we did souls to the polls is for black votes. And I'm, um, I'm like, okay, that's, that's nice indirect voter engagement, but that souls to the polls are very much for the party faithful are very much for, um, you know, folks who are already being organized. Like if you're, I knew an organizer down South who was doing like souls to the polls, get them all organized, uh, you know, uh, counted up to a couple hundred people and she had to organize and was like, all right, we're going to like start, doing a little car train to the (laughs) to the polls that's a major organized effort to build for something like that and a radio ad okay I hear a lot of radio ads um as do a lot of people and that's a nice reminder but it's not it doesn't replace actual substantive phone call voter text engagement yeah
0: so we've established that conservatives were energized and we can talk a bit later right. about why and what they were energized around. Right. But, and this is just, just my, you know, hot take, just off the cuff here. You know, one of the things that i noticed with the McAuliffe campaign in what they were com- campaigning on, like I said, it's anecdotal. It's from media reports. I'm, I was never at any of the rallies. So I'm not really sure what he said to his audience, but the reports were that he was running against Trump and trying to connect Youngkin to Trump. And, you know, I'm not really sure how that translates to the Democratic base, but Mm -hmm. and and again, I'm not a strategist, but I would imagine that they had a lot more to run on than than that. Right. And some people criticize the campaign saying like, oh, well, the infrastructure bill hadn't passed. And that's also why voters didn't come out. You know, perhaps that, you know, perhaps, you know, (laughs) that could have been the case. But they had a lot to run on that. I think that they that they didn't, right? Like the pandemic relief package, right? You know, yeah. cutting child poverty in half. You know, what was in the infrastructure bill. You know, I mean, heck, they could have even run on the fact that Kamala Harris was VP and they've got a, a large African-American and pretty large Asian yeah. community in Virginia that they could have run on. There's so many things that they could have run on, in addition to running against Trump. And I'm not really sure that was a part of the campaign message.
1: Yeah, none of it was. Um, what was part of the campaign message was yes, gunkin was equal to Trump. Now, are like was he co-signing and giving wink winks to people concerned about election integrity after on the Republican side after the 2020 election? Sure. Was he spending a lot of time doing that in public rooms and what no, he definitely wasn't. He was trying to put his arm length between him and Trump because also it's Virginia, he can't like there were (laughs) Biden won by ten points. So he knows exactly that there's not enough people to give him that edge, being like tying himself to Trump in this in this state. And so You know, outside of federal stuff, um, you know, McAuliffe had the opportunity to run on what the Democrats had done in Virginia in the last four years, repealed the death penalty, Um, you know. Uh, worked on uh, environmental, worked on environmental stuff, criminal justice reform, legalizing marijuana, um, protecting reproductive rights, expanding access um, to reproductive rights, uh, expanding voting rights. There are so many things I can't even mention, but these are some of the things that I know came out of the Virginia General Assembly. I mean, I have friends in California who are like, we can't, we have a moratorium on the death penalty for like the last Quarter like last or five years, we still can't even repeal it. And Virginia just went and repealed it as a state that was the leader in executing people. We repealed our death penalty. These are huge accomplishments. You know, job growth happened when um, McAuliffe was governor. He did mention some of those things when he was governor. But where he failed to pivot, I think, was that he didn't talk about then based off of all these amazing things I did as governor, based off what Virginia Democrats have brought to you. This is what, if you give me the opportunity to serve another four years, uh, is the future of Virginia, how we build back better in the Commonwealth. You know, whether that's there was talk about having a state family paid leave plan. Yes, everybody's cranky about build back better, paid family leave being taken out. But we had the votes to make a paid family leave plan happen in the state. That could have been something he talked about um, if he was, you know, governor, right? So a lot of people were concerned that he was spending so much time tying Duncan to Trump that he failed to talk about his future message for Virginia and get people excited and motivated for the next four years and use a strong legislative agenda on which the Democrats had built um, in the General Assembly and with uh, democratic leadership statewide in the last four. Um, I was told post the election that, tying Youngkin to Trump, pulled well in internals with party faithful. You don't have to tell me twice. Like, I'm not going to vote for Youngkin. Like, you know, <laughs> <completely laughs> Democrats, right? You know, like Okay, I get it. Like, we can't, you know, have this dude in there. But like, for the people who don't pay attention every day, they're like, Trump's gone, right? Like, they're not seeing some of the threats that you and I are sort of seeing in the news. You don't, you know, don't watch Matt out, don't want Hayes, all of that. So, um, you know, you have to make You have to make other points besides, especially when Youngkin is trying very hard to make sure he doesn't look like he's tied to Trump. You have to try for other things. And I never saw that pivot really happen. So,
0: no, you're absolutely right. Like all the things that the Virginia House of Delegates have been able to do since they had the blue trifecta or just the state generally I mean, it's, it's incredible, right? I mean, like you said, in some ways, they were more progressive than states like California. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, that just wasn't a part of the campaign message. And I think that this is a lesson that we need to take as a party into 2022 and 2024, right? You really have to hammer on what what you've done, whether you're looking at the state level or at the federal level. For instance, you know, I was looking at the numbers. I think 30% of, um, Youngkin won about 30% of Latino voters and about 30%, over 30% of Asian, voters and 13% of um, black voters, right? You know, yeah. that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, mention the fact that Biden, <laughs> you know, restored DACA via executive action. Right. I mean, you know, just say like this is the party that you need to get out to vote for and this is the party you need to be excited about. And I just didn't hear that. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We didn't say that either. And so I think of that, you know, when you're not doing voter engagement to the base um in a substantive way. Uh and you're not Uh, Re-emphasizing that with a positive message. And then especially to those who are, you know, uh, less like consistent voters, nothing for them to get excited about. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it kind of all compounds itself. Um, And also just how the Republicans were very strategic. Um, You know, I've learned about what the Republicans were doing um, in Virginia to try and really shore up the vote. And they were being smart about it. They're like, okay, listen, like Northern Virginia is a blue hub in the state for blue vote, like for Democratic votes. So we just know we can't get below this margin. Right. And they were like, it's 43, 44 percent. We'll probably like we just if it gets higher than that, we're having an issue. So we just have to get a certain number of Republican votes out of this blue area. And then we'll go focus and run up the score in the parts of the state that we know will win, like the southern parts and the southwest. And that's what they went and did. And they, and they also looked at, they didn't give up on every voter. They're like, my mom got a call from the Yankee campaign, even though her voting record has consistently said Democrat for the last four or five more years. They called her, right? They called people who maybe like are consistent voters and like, hey let me talk to you about the positive vision that Glenn Youngkin has for Virginia. Um, You know, so they call, they, they like segmented Asian voters. I remember reading something where they said they talked to Polynesian, they talked to East Asian, they were looking at different segments of communities, you know, their politics. And I'm just sitting here weeping because I'm like, Oh my God, this is, this is the type of work that our party needs to be doing, not just on a statewide, but on a national level, because that's essentially how Stacey Abrams came you know, very close to winning, say, for votes being dumped um, and other voter suppression tactics in Georgia, she had the same thing. She had Vietnamese uh, language phone banks running. She had Spanish phone banks running, like reaching out to voters in their language, talking about the message of the Democrats and what Democrats would do for them um, and meeting them where they were. And there wasn't that kind of rigorous... Campaign effort. Like, I was hearing delegates are like out in southern parts of the state. They're like, yo, you'd see educators for Yelkin, you'd see teachers for young kid, you'd see students for young kid." And then there was none of that on our side, which is funny. We've done that in the past where we've had educators or hunters for Northam or Black voters for Northam or, you know, young people for, you know, whatever candidate is running at that time. And we didn't have any of that constituency sort of targeted outreach and signs. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that goes back to the overconfidence, you know, I I just, um and this is kind of a controversial thing to bring up because I'm not, I try to avoid, you know, ageism, wow. generally, especially in politics, yeah. because that often comes up. And, you know, I don't, I don't actually even know how old Terry McAuliffe is, but um I'm curious as to whether he was really the right candidate, you know, because we've seen him before. He's been around in politics for a very long time. And, you know, I wonder if voters were not enthusiastic because they, you know, they were saying, you know, we've seen this before, you know, we've seen this movie before and I wasn't watching the the, the race early on, but apparently there were two black women who were also running against McCulloch in the primary. And I just, I just wonder if that was, if that led to some apathy to some extent, just because you had two white men kind of running against each other. And, and, and when the differences in policy weren't made very clear, you know, voters may have thought, you know, why should I come out? I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there was like a discussion I was in a Twitter space, like election night or the night after, before the election or after, I can't remember, where somebody said, you know, would it have been different if, uh, you know, if uh, Jen McClellan or Jennifer Carefoy, the two black women you are referring to, uh, one's a Gen X or one's a millennial, uh, if either one of them had been at the top of the ticket, would there have been different? We'd be, we be looking at a very different election result. And even like the white, you know, political guys in the room are like, uh, yeah, <laughs> in this Twitter space. Yeah. We're like, yeah. And I think because one, having the significance of putting a black woman in, in the governor's mansion for the first time, like we missed that opportunity in Georgia. For Virginia getting the chance to do that would have moved a lot of black women that I know, a lot of black women that other people know, especially you know, just black people in general. Like again, just black women, but definitely, you know, black people in general. And a lot of like there are a lot of uh, white liberal women who are very supportive of like Finally seeing a woman governor, especially a woman of color, given that, you know, many of um, the ones who are involved in our Democratic Party, white liberal women, were like, you know, we, we get it. Like, the base of the party is women of color, especially black women. So why would we not, you know, put somebody up who's the standard bearer for all of our causes and reflects our base? Um, so I think that it would have been a different election result. I also think that neither one of them, because they had not served as governor prior, would have would have run it away. Uh, that would have been a lot more energized because they were like, "I, you know, this is my shot. Like, I got to I got to make this happen and not feel as overly confident um, about their chances. So,
0: yes. And I think people forget about the fact that depending on the candidate, the candidate brings a team with them, right? <laughs> they bring a philosophy as to how to run the campaign. So it isn't just, you know, the candidate and the Democratic Party, right? It's the candidate and the team that they've chosen to run this race with them. So if either one of those women had won the primary, the, the you know, this race would have looked completely different. I don't know what it would have looked like. I don't know if they would have won, but all of the things that we've talked about as being missteps in the campaign, you know, they may not have happened with a different candidate. So I don't know. It's hard to say.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a lot of folks feel fairly comfortable, I will say, on the ground, but the energy would have been different. The excitement would have been different. And our base would have been mobilized and voter voter engagement would have been taken like seriously in a way that had been historically taken seriously, uh, that we didn't see as much here this time around. So,
0: yeah. So and and again, I have nothing against Terry McAuliffe. You know, he seems like a really nice person, (laughs) I just wonder, you know, from for the party, you know, what we need to do to win, you know, um.
1: you know if you're, you know if you're going to run, if a if a white guy is going to run to get the nomination, um, you know he has to really think, and I think Biden recognized that when he got the nomination. uh, You have to think of ways to appeal to all of the facets of your party. Um, We had an Afro-Latino woman running as lieutenant governor, and I think that just in the outreach, the messaging and the strategy, um, there was not a lot to break through. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, if you're, especially if you're going to run with somebody, he's an older, he's an older white man. So I think that you have to think of, how do I as an older white man break through? Bernie Sanders is very popular with a large percentage of some younger people of color. They were excited by him because he talked about things that they cared about mm-hmm. and were relevant in their lives. It's not impossible. Like Sherrod Brown does it. And uh, right. uh, Ed, Ed Markey did it over, you know, uh, uh, young Joe, uh, Joe Kennedy. So it's possible. But that wasn't the type of campaign you ran. So.
0: Right. Then, like I said, you know, when I open that question is that I don't think that age is a factor. I stay away from ageism when I talk about yeah. politics or anything yeah. in general, because, you know, you've got, you know, people like Maxine Waters, Barbara Lee, who've been in yeah. politics forever. You know, Nancy Pelosi is as sharp as a tack. Right. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's the candidate yeah. and the message and the energy. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. And then, yeah. of course, our president. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and speaking of Beto, I guess there was an announcement this morning. It's just kind of getting off, off track here for a second. Like, I guess he's running for, for governor. Did you hear that? Yeah,
1: I did. Saw that <laughs> great news. So I knew that he was. I was hearing it on the ground and then he was kind of getting stuff together. So I was wondering whether that was going to happen or not.
0: So it did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So So back to this. I just want to ask about another veteran. Of the democratic party again not someone that i have anything <laughs> against and, you know he's a great strategist in his day um james carville right mm-hmm. who thinks that it was the the you know the the wokeness <laughs> you know dems are being too woke and i just you know that's just so muddled for so many reasons you know what does he mean yes. by woke what does he want i mean we kind of know what he means by woke you know yes. w- what's your take let's just get your take on this I mean, he is a guy who comes from the
1: 90s when they were always thinking about talking to white moderate voters and, you know, he thought it was like, it's the economy, stupid. Don't talk about these fancy social issues. Like y'all are thinking too much about, <laughs> you know, he's the one who would probably yell, I think he has, about defund the police and like activists saying that and tying it to Democrats, even though I really don't know too many um certainly not in this race that wasn't like on, on the table um Kid we kid we're saying so it's just like you know that's what he's mailing against and like i don't know why they bring him on television anymore because he doesn't work races anymore like the country like the last time the man was on a massive like presidential race considering and looking at the electorate and polling it was the mid-90s you and I were definitely not adults at the time. <laughs> like, like, so it's a very, it's a very different country. Heck, it's a very different country in the last four years, let alone since Barack Obama was elected in 2008. Like I was watching a 2008 primary uh, documentary or a documentary on the 2008 election. And I was just sitting there like, just stunned at how much even our political dialogue has changed. Yeah, Like, you know, and attitudes have changed since that time. So, you know, uh, a whole generation has come of age, like two generations, actually. Millennials have come of age in that time since Carvo was presided mm-hmm. over presidential race and uh, Gen Zers, which weren't even like a thing because (laughs) (laughs) they were like like, of age and voting. And they have very different priorities and politics. They are making up the base. They are the future of the party. They are the now, but they're definitely the future. And even older exers, we're all thinking differently about how we can do America and build America in a very different type of way. And when he says wokeism, it's really offensive to you know, Like those out there who are trying to think of how to have a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious top democracy that also uh, is well, a
0: wealthy nation
1: that does not leave anybody behind,
0: you know. You know yeah yeah and I, i'm personally offended as a black woman when yeah. you know, No, i mean i i am because yeah, we it's, yeah. it's coded, you know he's saying yeah. like you know this this party is worrying too much about the needs of black and brown people i'm sorry do something else and i and i, I find ahead. that personally offensive you know given that you know we are the group especially yeah. black women who give democrats yeah. the win and you're saying like oh well you know don't worry about them you know that's and i'm just so concerned about that. Yeah.
1: Right. Your concerns about police reform, your concerns about, you know, maternal health, your concerns about public policy and voting rights, all of that stuff. Not a not a concern. Cause it's about the economy, stupid. That was what he said. I'm like, yeah, it's about the economy, which like black people are getting also left out of. So how are you going to talk about that? <laughs> so, yeah, no, I am
0: um,
1: very, very much over it. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they book him because he's charismatic. I mean, he is really charismatic, you know, the way he said. I mean, I wish he were kind of like up on things and <laughs> kind of modernized his rhetoric and his narrative. And he'd be actually kind of interesting to listen to just because of his charisma. But he's, you know, he's, like you said, he's back in the 90s and wow. that's really unfortunate and they should really stop looking for these takes.
1: And no, I don't know. There are, there's an amazing generation of strategists since then. I would, I would rather hear from... Um, and, you know, there's diminishing returns on what some of the younger survivors have to say, because they will still white men. But I'd rather hear from David Bluff, who at least operated a campaign in this century.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. So we didn't talk about critical race theory. So critical race theory is is a really juicy topic. Uh, we could have a whole other conversation about that. But essentially, actually, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we could. Yeah. I mean, we should actually, you know, Um yeah. because it's not a thing. And it bothers me yeah. to, to have all of these debates about critical race theory when it's not a thing. It's literally a made up thing by Republicans Yet Democrats are talking about it so much. They've made it sound like we're running on critical race theory right. when we're not because it doesn't exist in the settings that they that they say it does. But I do believe that that was a factor in people getting out and being energized for Glenn Youngkin because, you know, they were saying, you know, like, hey, there's this really scary thing. If you saw all of the, you know, the violent protests, which weren't violent, you know, last year for George Floyd, they're going to bring that to the classrooms and scare your children and make them feel guilty. And it's just it was completely made up and not true. And I think that Democrats have been trapped into talking about it because they're just trying to correct the lies from from the right.
1: Yeah, and I think that they haven't really they haven't really grappled with how to deal with the messaging on it. Straight up deny that it exists isn't working because the Fox News has run with it for so long that people actually believe it exists. I know of an elected official in Loudoun County where this started um and was like the hub of most of this fight, um, who ran into a voter who said that she, they have to like not elect Democrats because the school board is pushing CRT and it's terrible. And this elected official asked the woman, what is it? Can you tell me what that is? No, I just know but it's happening. I don't have any kids in the school. I just know it's evil. Where is she getting that? Fox News and a whole bunch of other like propaganda on the ground. I mean, I saw countless of interviews with voters who said, I can't tell you what it is. I just know it's happening in the schools and we got to stop it. I do compete with that. So when you say to like, you know, somebody it doesn't exist, they're like, no, but I heard it does. Like in their mind. Like it's like it's, it exists. So, you know, therefore, you know, because Fox News has told them so obviously it's true. It's on a news network. So because they've been covering that's this right. for a year. Yeah. yeah. So that's what they're dealing with. And I mean when you when I saw an interview with one of the Republican strategists who worked for Youngkin, they asked him about it, he says, Well, we're Democrats are lying. I've seen I, I know it is big in schools. The reporter did not refute him. Right. That's on the media to refute that too. And she did not refute him. He said Democrats are lying. They are teaching this in school. Well, I mean, there's not a handbook he said, but it's it's happening. I mean, there's like things that are happening in the school that are CRT. you straight line, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah
0: yeah. 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 I think I'll have a whole conversation about CRT, not from oh, yeah. perspective not of, of like, <laughs> about what it is. not not necessarily yeah. from perspective about what it is, but about yeah. what to do about it from a democratic strategic point of view. So given everything that we've just talked about, what should Democrats be doing to, let's just do 2020, 2022, the midterms. How do we not make these same mm-hmm. mistakes?
1: I think one is that we absolutely focus on our base. Um of voters, make sure that we're talking to them, make sure we're selling them on the things that we have done um, and talking to the concerns that they have in their districts, right? Like, not every district is made the same. That's one. Two is actually reaching out to voters in areas, not giving up on certain areas. Some people say, you know, we haven't We haven't talked to rural voters in a while. We haven't. And so, you know, some folks are like, well, there's a lot of white rural voters, but they vote for Republicans. Devotedly. Okay. Well, there's other, there's black voters. 25% of the rural areas are made up of black and brown voters. Talk to them. Like, has anybody engaged with them? I've heard stories from plenty of rural candidates who are Democrats who go into these areas and they're like, you're the first Democrat who's knocked on my door in 10 years. Right. Talk to them, engage the white voters who've long since disengaged. You know, we look at white suburban voters and, You know, uh, we, we say, okay, well, white suburban women are gone, but when you look even further in the demographics, you're like, okay, well, we, we seem to be getting with white college educated women. So why don't we, we have the data and information to target. So why don't we do better targeting and outreach? And so talk to our base, uh, build in the rural areas, build in the suburban areas with the voters who are with us and start talking about the things that we've done well and what we plan to do if they get, give us the vote, you know, if, if they come out and vote for us. So those are some of the like basic things I think we need to be doing that hasn't been handled. So yeah, those are some of the things I think about going into 22 that we just need to do that are lessons that we've learned from I've seen happen in 2021 that we need to do in 2022 if we even hope to win. But I will say this, we are dealing with the headwinds of running in a time frame where you know democrats are uh you know we're running to keep uh the house when usually the president who occupies the white house's party usually loses seats we're going after redistricting has happened um so it's going to be harder which is why it's even more important that we really run up our voter engagement game so
0: yeah. Well, Atima Mara, thank you so much. You heard it straight from the expert in Virginia. Thank you so much. And, and I will definitely have to have you on again. So um, thanks for all the work that you do and have a good one. Yes, you
1: too. Thank you so much for having me.